The last Bible reading is taken from verse 14 through to the end of the chapter. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, Last term, uh, in their history studies, my children were learning a little bit uh, about the Vietnam War. We watched a couple of YouTube videos of people sharing their experience of what it was like for them to fight in that war. In one of those clips, a Vietnam veteran described how one of the worst things for him was that the enemy was always unseen. Because the Viet Cong fighters didn't wear uniforms like the American troops did, the Americans couldn't tell if a village was full of farmers or rebel troops or both. Even the most innocent-looking situations had to be treated with caution. You never knew when you would walk into an ambush or step upon a landmine. Now, in many ways, living as a Christian in this world is a little bit like that. Life is full of ambushes and unseen booby traps, which can go off at any time, and which can start the rot in us, which may eventually cause us to turn our backs on Jesus. The central message of this book of Hebrews is one of warning. It warns us of the danger of losing sight of Jesus and then drifting from him, eventually, maybe, falling away.
Well, in this final section of chapter 12, this is 14 to 29, is really the climax, if you like, um, of this theme of warning. And we see a number of warnings here um, that the writer gives us, and he tells us why we need to take these warnings seriously, why we need to listen and pay careful attention to God's word. And you see, what you choose to do with these warnings from God will set your course in life. And actually, it will determine your eternal future. What the writer has to say here is in many ways an issue of life and death. So the first thing that we see, point number one, we see in verses 12 to 14, the writer gives us some sins that we are to avoid in the Christian life because they're dangerous, all right? So look at verse 14. He begins there by saying, make every effort to live in peace. Some translations will say strive to live in peace with everyone. Now remember that the writer is addressing a congregation of Christian people here in this letter. Now as we live together as believers, that experience can sometimes be really good, but at other times it can be really tough. Relationships between Christians can be an area of real struggle, of hardship. It's one of those areas where it can be really hard to keep on trusting Jesus and doing what is right before the Lord. And I don't know, perhaps the struggle for faith in your life today is in the form of a particular relationship struggle. God's word to us here is that if we are Christian people, we are to strive for unity and peace. And it's very helpful at this point, ladies, to remember what the entire book of Hebrews is teaching. So throughout the book, the writer makes it clear that Jesus has brought peace between us and God. His sacrifice for sins, once for all, has actually closed the gap between God and man. And because of Jesus, we can draw near to God. We can be in his presence with a clean conscience. And that's why, if you remember back to talk one, Jesus is better than anything and anyone that has gone before. But you see, God hasn't only reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus. He has also reconciled us to one another. And so we need to make every effort to live at peace with one another because God has brought peace between us. We didn't bring the peace. Jesus did it by his death on the cross. And there is no room in this race of faith for us to be disqualifying each other because God himself, through Jesus, has put us in this race together. That's part of his work in us. Um, I love watching big marathons on TV, you know, like the two oceans and the comrades. And it always uh, moves me to tears when you see that one runner, you know, the guy, and he's like often an old dude, and he's just like limping along to finish the race. And um, he's in so much pain that you sort of think, this guy is never going to make it. And the guy himself thinks he's never going to make it. And um, as he gets close to the finish line, you just see this poor man has got like nothing left to give. And it's just a step too far for him. That finish line is just, it's just, just out of his grasp. And as he's about to give up, some running mates come along. And although they are struggling too, you know, they get alongside and they pick up that broken runner. And they carry him. 
They carry him across the finish line. They struggle across together, and then they all collapse in a heap. But they've made it together. They've carried one another. Now, to live at peace with one another is to live out the reality of what Jesus has achieved at the cross. We are to carry each other across the finish line. We're to run together the race of faith because God has put us in it together. One of the ways we honor the Lord Jesus is by helping one another along in this race. That's what holiness looks like. See, Jesus has made us holy. We didn't do that. God has done it for us in the death and resurrection of his son. He has declared us righteous before the Father. And he has brought us together to run as redeemed people together in this race towards our new home, our new city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so we are to live these holy lives together. And notice the writer says in verse 14, make an effort to live in peace and to be holy. Because if you're not going to do this, if you're not going to live holy lives, the lives that God has given to you in Jesus, well, then you're not going to see the Lord. It's a life and death situation. God has declared us right with himself, and we are to live out that practically in our relationships with one another. You see, the gospel must affect and transform our day-to-day living, how we relate to our children, to our parents, to our husbands, to our friends. Living the holy lives that God has called us to as a community, it's no small thing. It's something we have to take very seriously. Without holiness, we cannot see the Lord. And he means our personal holiness, our godliness, our pressing on in the Christian life. But he also means our doing that together, helping each other on the road of of godliness. And he says in verse 15, there's another warning. See to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. You see, the writer is saying here that we're to make sure that we help one another to keep running the race right to the end that we don't cause anyone in our community to give up. But the question is, how can we cause another Christian to miss out on the grace of God? Well, the writer gives us some examples in the rest of verse 15 and into verse 16. He illustrates for us how we may be in danger of doing that. So look at the end of verse 15. He says there, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. So he's saying, don't let a bitter root spring up in your relationships because that can cause people to walk away from the faith. You see, he's talking here about the pride and arrogance that often grows in the human heart. That pride and arrogance that puts me at the center of everything. That kind of thing causes people to be harsh with each other, to be unforgiving, to lack in compassion and grace. And when we do that, we make one another bitter. We cause people to abandon Christ. You know, I've seen this thing happen so often. You have two Christians, and they're at each other. I've had two sets of friends where this has been true for them, and it's heartbreaking. They've been fighting with one another, and they're too proud to apologize. And deep, deep, deep hurt is caused. And one person looks upon the other as representing Christianity, and because that person has hurt them so much, well, they don't only turn their back on the friendship, but they turn their back on Jesus too. Ask yourself this. 
Has there ever been an instance where your conflict or argument or envy of another Christian has led either of you to a greater joy or a better service of God? No. That's never been the outcome, has it? And so the writer is saying, make sure that as individuals you are pursuing godliness and holiness so that that will rub off in your relationships with one another. Don't be selfish and proud and arrogant because that will have an impact on your community. You will alienate each other. You will fight and argue. That's not what God wants. I thought it looked a bit odd. We need to guard ourselves and our relationships, our church communities, from this sort of bitterness because it is destructive. It destroys relationships and it destroys faith. And the writer is saying, avoid that sin. And one of the ways that this resentment and this bitterness that can cause people to turn away from Jesus can take root is there in verse 16, sexual immorality. I think it's fair to say, ladies, that in our churches today, this is one of the leading causes of people actually falling away from Jesus. When temptation comes and the struggle to remain holy becomes too strong, rather than crying out to God for mercy, people give in. And then, when they're caught, rather than humbling themselves before God, seeking him, asking for forgiveness, repenting of their sin. They walk away from Jesus, either in anger or in shame. Or they leave a spouse so hurt that the spouse walks away from Jesus. And here now the writer uses the example of Esau. Do you see that? See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, verse 16, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So he uses the example of Esau as the warning of walking away from God, of what that will do, of what it's going to be like for you if you give in to unbelief. And he says, don't be like Esau. Now you can go and read Esau's story later today, Genesis chapter 25, and you can read it from about verse 29 onward. But in summary, when Esau was hungry, what did he do? You see, he gave up believing what God had in store for him. He exchanged the promise of God for a mere bowl of food. He grabbed at what the world had to offer, and he turned his back on the promise of God and the good things, the future inheritance that God had in store for him. Esau had something precious, and he threw it away because he was only living for the moment. It's a lot like that with adultery. Christian men, women who have something precious, an inheritance from God, and they choose the sin of unbelief. Oh, I don't think God knows what's best for me. That woman, that guy, he's better for me. And off they go in their unbelief. And at the heart of unbelief, the heart of sin is unbelief. And off they go, giving up something so precious for something so momentary. That's what we do. You know, you read Esau's story, and it's almost bizarre that he would make such a crazy trade-off, giving up his inheritance, his birthright, for a bowl of food. You think to yourself, is this guy nuts? But the point is, what we see so clearly in Esau, we often don't see in ourselves. 
If you're a Christian, but you're living for the here and now, rather than pursuing holiness, then actually you're being just as stupid as Esau. In the same way that his birthright was a gift, your holiness is a gift given to you by God himself. It gives you a new identity and a place in a family, this family, God's beloved people. It came at a huge cost. Jesus died to declare you holy. And your holiness, the fact that you can stand before God forgiven because of Jesus, guarantees you an amazing future, an inheritance, ladies, that will last forever. But if you despise your holiness so that you can flirt with sin, then you are in effect trading your birthright for a plate of poisoned food. If you're not living now for God's future, and one of the ways we do that is in community with one another, our relationships, then you will not reach God's future. If your efforts in this life are not turned towards holiness, then you will not see the Lord. Can you see how serious this is? It's not a small thing. You are to be who you are. And if you turn your back on that, the writer is saying you're not going to make it. You're not going to finish this race. If you only care for what is seen, then guess what? You'll get it. You'll get that guy or the money or the stuff. You'll get it all. But it will cost you eternity. But Esau, of course, as you read his story back in Genesis, was also sexually immoral. You know, he couldn't wait for the right wife, so he took whatever woman was before him. And he married in haste. And just like his hunger made him betray his birthright, it was his anger at his father that made him marry an unbeliever. And in the short term, those decisions made his tummy happy, satisfied his revenge, and gave him a woman. But look at what it cost him. And the writer is saying, learn from Esau even though he then sought the blessing with tears. With tears, he couldn't change what he had done. That is how we need to hear this, that our consequence, our giving into unbelief, doing what we want rather than what God says, it has eternal consequences. We flirt with sin and think it doesn't matter. We flirt with sin and we think, ah, oh, but Jesus paid for me at the cross. But can you see the writer's point here? Yes, he did pay for you at the cross, therefore be holy. Seek holiness, how you live in community with one another. Stop hopping in each other's beds. Stay faithful to your husband. Trust God. Run the race of faith. Don't give in, because if you will not do that, you can't claim to know God. You will not inherit what you think is waiting for you. And Esau couldn't get it. He lost out. And we need to learn from him. You see, the warning is just for as much for us today as it was for the first century readers of this book. If you choose keep, if you continue to despise your holiness, there will come a point when it's too late. It's too late. You will become addicted to the year and the now, and you won't be able to see beyond it. I know people like that. They've lost all perspective, entangled in their sin. You will regret that decision, just like Esau did. But the worst thing of all, is even that sorrow won't bring you to repentance. How many people do, I know so many people, they go, I wish I'd never done that. 
oh, it was a mistake, but they just don't repent. They stay trapped in regret. They don't come back. And there is a difference. We are called to holiness. We are to live out that holiness amongst one another. Our relationships have to be different. The church family is like a bright neon signpost that should be pointing to Jesus. There's no time to mess around, to flirt with sin. We need to be serious. This is serious stuff. Well, in the next little section, the writer goes on to tell us why we need to listen. Why do we need to pay attention? Well, he tells us that we need to listen to what God has said because of something that has not happened to us and because of something that has happened to us. And that's our second point. Why do we need to listen to God's warning? Why do we need to listen? Well, first of all, he tells us we need to listen to this warning because of something that has not happened to us. And he describes that for us in verses 18 to 21. And in those verses, what the writer is describing there is what happened back at Mount Sinai. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12, I think it is. Back in Mount Sinai, chapter 19, back in Exodus 19, God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, and they're all encamped around the foot of the mountain, and only Moses can go up into the presence of God. And even then, he's got to, like, cover his head, and God is in the cloud above the mountain. And God says, no one else is to come up here. Later, Aaron did go. God asked Moses to fetch Aaron and take him up. But the people had to stay encamped at the base of the mountain, and they couldn't even touch the mountain, because if they touched it, God would strike them dead. So they had to listen to the word of God, and they couldn't just go into the presence of God. And when they did hear God giving the Ten Commandments, they were terrified as they heard his voice coming out of the cloud. They were terrified. Okay, the mountain shook, there was smoke, there was fire, all sorts of things that were happening um, on the mountain as this all took place. But the point is that these people, they couldn't come into the presence of God. They had to stand at a distance. And as they heard God from a distance, imagine if you were there. Imagine if you were out at Mount Sinai. And God has said, and you've heard him say, if you touch the mountain, I'm going to strike you dead. No wonder they were trembling, all right? They were terrified. It was a huge thing that happened. And if I were there, I probably would have gone away somewhat different to what it was like before I got there. Right? It would have made a bit of a difference in my life to hear that and to see it. Well, the writer is saying, guess what? That's not what's happened to you. That's actually quite small in comparison to what's happened to you. What has happened to you? You've not come to this mountain of smoke and fire where you could only hear God at a distance out of his presence. No, no. What's happened to you in the next couple of verses is that you, through the Lord Jesus, have been brought into the very presence of God. And you don't need to be fearful and trembling because God, the judge of all, has washed your conscience he has cleansed you through the death of Jesus. And through the Lord Jesus, you can come into the presence of God without fear and trembling, a clean conscience. The judge of the universe who told those men not to touch that mountain accepts you as holy and forgiven. It's the most incredible thing. And he's saying, goodness gracious me, if you were at that mountain, it probably would have changed you. How much more should this message not change you? Why are you going back to your sin like a dog to its vomit when this is what God has done for us? When everything the ancients waited for has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and we benefit the most. We can stand before God, cleansed and forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. God has brought us into a new reality. And so the question is, how can you not strive for holiness? 
If that's our reality, how can we not strive to be the people that God has made us to be? He's not even asking us to become those people. He's saying, you've been made holy. Now be who you are. And so we need to listen to this warning because a far greater thing has happened to us than has happened to Moses and the Israelites. Oh, ladies, we come face to face with God in the Lord Jesus. How can that not change us? It breaks my heart that so much of our counseling, Christian couples cheating on each other, Christian men and women caught out stealing from their company, lying to one another, fighting and arguing, and then the one won't come to this service because the other one's in that service. How can that be? How can that be when this is what God has done for us in Jesus? And in verses 22 to 24, the writer goes on to give one expression after another to almost fill out what it means that we have come into this new reality, to this new Jerusalem, as he calls it. And each one is more amazing than the one that precedes it. So in verse 22, he tells us, we have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And I think, yeah, Revelation 5 is probably somewhere in his mind. Revelation 5, where John describes a vision of thousands upon thousands of angels sitting around God's throne, worshiping him. And do you notice there in verse 22, the writer says, we have come to that reality. It's like we're already there if we're Christians. You see, what he's saying is that Jesus has secured our eternal future. We are part of that. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and we will sit there worshiping God with the angels, thousands upon thousands of them. That's our reality if we have come to Jesus and verse 23, if we are Christians, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn. And here again, all Christians are being described as God's firstborn. You see, in Old Testament culture, the firstborn in the family had all sorts of privileges. Here the writer is describing the privilege that God has bestowed on Christians, that we can be God's firstborn, his children, whose names are written in heaven where the angels worship God. We are part of that gathering of people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and who together with thousands upon thousands of angels will one day worship God in joyful praise. The writer is saying that this is a privilege we should not give up. Don't be like Esau who gave up this wonderful blessing. Keep going. Press on in holiness. And again, verse 23, if we are Christians, then we've come to God. We've come to the judge of all men. Because of Jesus, we have come to the very presence of God, into the presence of the judge, and the judge has declared us not guilty, pure, without blemish. Our consciences, as Hebrews says, sprinkled clean. Because of Jesus, the judge of all accepts us into his family. We are his. And it's interesting, there in verse 23, the righteous men that are talked about there are all of those mentioned back in chapter 11. Those have been made right with God through the ages. Like you, they've been made perfect by Jesus. They just lived on the other side of that reality. But together with them, 
you and I have been given a clean conscience and a perfect standing before God. And verse 24 is the jewel in the crown. We have come to Jesus, he says. To Jesus. And here's the thing. Because we've come to Jesus, we've come to a new Jerusalem. To thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Because we've come to Jesus, we are part of the assembly of the firstborn, the church of the living God. What a wonderful reality. That's who we are if we are in Christ. And now we are to live as those who are in Christ. And so the writer calls us to remember this reality because in his mind he knows that only this will motivate us to keep pressing on when life presses in. You see, ladies, the truth of what has happened to us in Jesus must motivate us to listen. To listen. That's the last warning that we see in verse 25. You've heard all of this. Look at what God has done in the Lord Jesus. So now, listen to him. Don't refuse him who speaks, the writer says. And that's the third point, the final warning. You see, if the Old Testament Israelites who came to Mount Sinai didn't escape God's judgment when they refused him, how much more for those of us who have the full puzzle, the full picture, will God judge us if we turn away from Jesus, if we refuse to listen to him? If we reject Jesus, then actually there is nothing left, no more sacrifice for sin. God will judge us. Look at verses 26 to 27. Kind of shakes us out of our apathy. The writer is saying that we need to remember that God is coming back to wrap up this world. Ladies, everything in this world, the things that we so often pursue rather than our holiness, those things are temporary. It's like milk, you know, it's got a sell-by date. It's going to go bad. The only permanent reality is found in the Lord Jesus and in the world that he will one day usher in. So he talks a lot here about the new Jerusalem and that we are already there. Now, it doesn't mean that we've got to go back as pilgrims to Jerusalem every year, you know, with the tour bus visiting Israel. The new Jerusalem is what he promised the ancients. It's a place where people will dwell with God forever, with him. And in the first instance, that's what Jesus does as we meet him. As we become Christians, we come into the presence of God. We dwell with him. And we are waiting for a future where the physical reality of that will be manifest completely. God is coming back, and that's the future he's bringing with him, where he rules as king, and where we, together with the angels, will worship in joyful assembly. And when Jesus comes back, he will establish this everlasting kingdom, one that will not perish, spoil, or fade. And everything else will actually cease to matter. Everything else will be removed. So when Jesus returns, if you are found clinging to the things of this world, rather than to him, then you will be destroyed right along with it. If like Esau, you turn your back on God and exchange what he has done in Jesus for what this world has to offer, then there's nothing left. I love that picture. You know, you almost see God coming like the Hulk, you know, just picking up the world and shaking it. It's finished. Don't waste your time like Esau. That's the point. 
listen to Jesus. Hear his word today. As you're sitting here, if there's something in your life that needs to stop, if there is sin that you're flirting with, if the sin of unbelief is creeping in, trying to pull you away, listen. In Hebrews it says, today, don't harden your voice when you hear God speak. Don't harden your heart. Your heart rather, not your voice. It's quite a thing, this. Right. All of this must give us confidence to listen, to cling to Jesus. And so look at verse 28. What should the right response be to this news? Well, firstly, we need to thank God for Jesus and for all that he's done for us. And secondly, we've got to worship God acceptably. Do you see that in verse 28 and 29? It doesn't mean that we have to sing better. Right? We often think of worship as song singing. But actually, worship is about the life we live. And so the writer is saying, if all of this is true, if this is what God's done, your whole life has to be different. Your life has to be shaped by this, fashioned by it. So Jesus has to be your true north. You have to navigate your life by the gospel. You have to be changed by what he has done. And so we've got to live these holy lives that God has rescued us for, committed to godliness. It's about struggling with the everyday sin, putting it off, putting away the things that hinder, saying no to the sin that will entangle, to the stuff that threatens to pull us away from Jesus. And we have to love Jesus as our ultimate affection. Well, ladies, as we finish up, Hebrews calls us to action. It calls us to wake up to ourselves and to realize the importance of Jesus and doing everything it takes, to st whatever it takes to stick with him. This, is, this involves making sure that our faith is not undermined by sin. There's nothing worse than ignoring Jesus. That's what the writer is saying here. Nothing worse than ignoring him. Sticking with Jesus brings eternal joys which far outshine the temporary things of this world. Jesus is coming back. He will shake the earth again. And when he does, where will you be? If he came back to shake the earth tomorrow, would he find you still playing around the fringe of church, not really getting involved? Or would he find you clinging to the very things that he will destroy rather than to him? Will he find you still dancing with your sin, entangled in its grip? Where do you stand today? As we leave here, let me encourage you, as the writer to the Hebrews does, to take stock, to listen to God, and to look at your life. It's a good time to stop, to pause, to think, where am I? Or would Jesus return to find you strong in your faith and helping others in your community to stay loyal to him? Why don't you take a few moments now just to think about these things. Maybe close your eyes, sit quietly. Think about your life. What needs to change? And then I'll end off in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to be people who will listen to your word. Help us not to just hear and then to go away unchanged. Help us to hear what you're saying to us, 
to look at our lives seriously in the light of the gospel, in the light of Jesus and what he has done for us, to make sure that we are running the race of faith with patient endurance, that we are looking to Jesus, that we are wanting to finish and to finish well. Thank you for the Lord, our Savior Jesus, who has made all of this possible, who loves us and walks with us. Please help us to keep him at the center of our vision, to keep going in the Lord. And please, Father, we pray that you would see us safely home to eternity, to that world that you promised to the ancients. Please help us when you come back to shake the earth to be found in Jesus, still pressing on in him. We look forward to that day, and we pray that by your spirit you would encourage us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on eternity. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.